Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for April 24th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about tonight's show. In addition to a lot of different political topics we've planned to cover, uh, in about 20 minutes, we're going to have Mike Tierney call back into the show. Mike has been on multiple times with us. Um, obviously, when he comes on, uh, he has a sports flair to what we ask him to discuss with us, and today is no exception. Um, it's always, We try to get that intersection of, of um, sports, politics, society, and tonight he's going to mainly discuss with us um, the name, image, and likeness deals in uh, college sports, and we're going to talk about the Supreme Court case that started all this, um, and then also um, kind of what we've seen early, I guess, one year into this, uh, how things are shaping up with, you know, is there a difference between, um, you know, uh, different gendered athletes and different things like that, and what kind of deals they're getting and how that may impact, you know, funding of colleges and, and how other students may perceive it. So we'll discuss all that with Mike here in just a bit. But until then, um, let's start off with, you know, once again, some sad news. We've had several of these in recent um, weeks to discuss. Um, the passing of a, a longtime senator from the state of Utah, Orrin Hatch, passed away. Um, Catherine, um, your thoughts on the life and work of Orrin Hatch? Well, I'm sorry for his family that... But he lived a good long life. I, um, I, I really can't think of anything nice to say about him. <laughs> I hate to say that, someone who has passed away. But you know, I didn't agree with him on probably anything. But you know, he served for a long time, and I'm sure that his constituents admired him and his family loved him. So, my condolences to them. Yeah. Tim, your your uh, thoughts on the life and work of Orrin Hatch? Well, uh, there's a fellow that uh, served longer than in the U.S. Senate than any Republican in history. He served uh, seven terms, uh, 42 years. Uh, he uh, rose to be the... Uh, assistant minority and majority leaders. Uh, He did work with Democrats on some things like AIDS research and uh, the DREAM Act, among other things. He was very conservative, though, and uh, he never met a tax cut for the rich. He didn't like, of course, and and that sort of thing. But uh, I, I think he was another one of those that decided he had had enough. Um. 
when he saw how things really were. There was a fellow who was one of Ted Kennedy's best friends. I mean, it's it's hard to believe that that we would talk about a very conservative Republican and the liberal line of the Senate being best friends, but but they were best friends, even though they, uh, you know, Orrin Hatch wasn't the go-out-and-party kind of guy, that sort of thing, uh, being that he was a Mormon, but... Uh, it uh it it at least takes us back to a time in the Senate when you know people were friendly and and got along and and, and that sort of thing now I'm afraid we just don't see that sort of thing now so it, it is kind of the more of the passing of an era and uh, very very sorry to hear that he's gone yeah um I think he uh my Indication of me, yeah, he definitely was very conservative, and therefore was not, you know, somebody that Democrats would agree with a lot in policy wise. But he was kind of a happy warrior in his style, and that's something that's definitely missing and lacking on the conservative side. You know, the Ted Cruz's and the Ron DeSantis's, they are just about owning the libs, and and they don't even his replacement uh, or a, well, a replacement in Utah, Mike Lee. Um, you know, they're a very different kind of politician than Orrin Hatch, and I think we would be better off if people could work together and then did get along on a personal level, like you mentioned, with Ted Kennedy. And there might be some times in which you would have um, some agreements on some things. Um, well, let's just times, remember maybe not that big things, but small things. He did, block Merrick, he did block Merrick Garland, so let's not yeah. – Let's not paint too pretty a picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, on the other hand, yeah, on the other hand, Kennedy thought so highly of him that uh, he was one of the speakers at Kennedy's funeral. Um, that that's what we've lost up there the the ability yeah. to even be friendly with each other anymore to even you know, go out to dinner together, to even speak to each other in a pleasant voice. And uh, it's, it's, it's really sad that, that all of that is gone now. Yeah, and Tim, you were mentioning the longevity and the terms. I guess, did Strom Thurmond as a senator, now we know he started as a Democrat, that I may become an independent and switched to Republican, did he serve more total terms than um, Orrin Hatch? No, I believe Hatch served uh, a, a little bit longer than Thurman did. Thurman was okay. also, uh, you know, a Democratic senator, too. Yes. And and Hatch, so he now, had, in, so totality, he terms. in totality, Thurman would have been there longer. But Hatch served more terms as a Republican than any other yes. Republican in history. And then I guess if Chuck Grassley wins this time in Iowa – I don't know what term this will be up to from him. I know he originally won in 80, so he'd be getting, you know, up there too in 40-plus years of um, mm-hmm. Senate service as well. Well, um, mm-hmm. let's go ahead and, and move to the next topic, and that's something that occurred today, earlier today in France. And the French, uh, they don't mess around with their runoffs. It didn't seem like it was just a week or two ago uh, that they had their uh, initial election and now they've had their runoff, and Emmanuel Macron, I think he was projected 
to be the favorite to win, but it was like, you know, um, Marine Le Pen on the national front has a, I think it was say like a one in nine, one in eight chance of uh, winning um, election. Well, early, or the, you know, the results that I've seen coming so far, she lost by about 20 points. Uh, Emmanuel Macron won quite resoundingly. Uh, Tim, kind of put some more context on this. Yeah, he won by 16.6%, something like that, uh, over over 5 million votes out, out of 30 million, uh, 32 million votes cast. So uh, this was expected, according to the polls, to actually be closer than this. Uh, this is her third try now at the presidency, and believe it or not, tonight's results is by far the closest she has come. But one has to wonder if the right-wing nationalists in in France have really taken it on the chin here. Uh, And one has to wonder that if her previous support of Vladimir Putin in light of the things that are going on now uh, just made the, the citizens of France finally, you know, say, no, no, we just we just can't go there with this person, even though her populist message, especially to working people uh, and especially um, outside of, of Paris, was was extremely well received and very popular. Uh, I, I got to think her being tied to Putin and, and and all of that, and the she she just too far went too far, a little bit too far, and that it, it uh, basically keeps France in the European Union. It also keeps France solidly in NATO, and it's nothing but good news for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, Catherine, um, what do you? What's your take on why um, you know Macron won re-election and Marine Le Pen fell short in this her third try in a row? I think Tim makes a really good point. I think a, a lot of things are going to uh, revolve around the you know Ukraine and Russia this year, and I think uh, Le Pen's support of Russia in the past and uh, Macron's you know, uh, you know, outspoken support of Ukraine probably helped him. I think that's probably the, I think the Europeans are more, tend to be more international in their views than the U.S. I think we tend to be more uh, internal and they look at, I mean, because they're also close to each other. Um, but, but I think that I think that has a, is the biggest piece of it. How about you, David? Yeah, Tim. Do you think this is the end of um, uh, Marine Le Pen as the uh, leader of the National Front as a candidate for um, the highest office in France, or do you think she'll keep plugging away? Well, it might be the end for her. I mean, this is the third time she's gone. You know, she's. This is as close as she's gotten. Uh, one thing I do think of, though, is, is that what Macron said in his remarks 
uh, this evening. He said that the anger of her voters must be addressed, and he's talking about the economic stuff. And they are experiencing uh, over there economically, you know, the things we're experiencing here. Uh, you know, that's inflation and, and, and all of that is worldwide. And uh, it's probably hitting France a bit harder than it is us uh, because we are recovering from the pandemic a little faster than than a country like France is. So the issues that she was championing, uh, championing this year are, are still going to be there probably. Uh, I just think it'll, it's probably time for somebody else to – to lead them. Yeah, I think um, that that is uh, so interesting. So many different, uh, you know, storylines, if you will, uh, from this election that play over to other parts of the world. That mm-hmm. um, rural city divide, it, it's just it's across our world. I mean, we really, uh, it's so, it's, it's here in America, it's almost every other country that has a democracy. Cities are moving either to the middle or to the left, and um, rural areas are moving to the right um, in, in so many places. Uh, another thing, you know, Marie Le Pen, when you hear about her policies, they're very different than a lot of you know, right-wing parties are as far as the economics. Um, it's much farther to the left than anything we'd see in America, but the social – Racial components and how they look at immigrants, how they view um, the way Muslims practice their religion is very similar to something we might see here. Um, But that comes up with another problem. France, like almost every country, is um, dealing with a demographic change as far as people in um, Western countries are having less children, therefore there's – uh, you know, a dearth of workers, and how are you going to fill the workforce? Well, it could be robots, but it could be bringing in immigrants. And then you have these folks that are so resistant to that because they see those people as other, as different. And how are they going to reconcile the fact that they're ticked off, that nobody wants to you know, fill the jobs, but yet they don't want to bring in the labor from where the labor may actually exist? How are they going to deal with those problems? Another thing, you know, inflation. It is a worldwide problem. Are we going to blame in our own country, the leader of our country, whatever country that is, and put it all on them? Are we going to see it as a worldwide problem? That means we've got to have a worldwide solution, and that's that kind of globalism that you know a lot of right-wing voters are very reticent about. They don't want to depend on other nations. They don't want to be interconnected. So how are they going to solve these problems that may only have solutions that they don't like? Um, and I see that only for the national front in France, but but a lot of um, right-leaning parties. And how do they, you it's know, deal with that issue? Ironic. So I think I think you're right, David. But it's so ironic because um, so many of the, I mean, everything that. I mean, it's really hard to buy products in the United States that aren't made in China. And now, with all the problems in transportation and logistics, getting products from China is getting, you know, is increasingly difficult. 
But I do think it's ironic that uh, a lot. I think you're absolutely right that a lot of the right wing people are like, um, you know, they don't they don't trust foreigners, but they're perfectly happy supporting China and other Asian countries to make all their products. <laughs> and that's true in Europe too. It's not just here. I just think it's ironic that we don't see beyond uh, our own needs, you know. Yeah. Well, I think they a lot of them probably would love American-made products, but they don't realize that a lot of the – at least the components, if not the actual raw product – and we're not talking all about sophisticated electronics. We're just talking about tennis shoes and, and clothing. The reason that we can afford them at their current prices – is because they are made in overseas, and the labor is paid nothing close to a living wage in America. And therefore, if we brought everything over to America, um, it would just, you know, prices would immediately go up. And for another reason, um, and then we would have to deal with that. Maybe we'd have to have less stuff. Uh, nobody wants to hear that that bad medicine that you might, you know, be afford less stuff. But I mean, that's just the Economic realities that people have to face, and that and that kind of stuff you just can't put on a bumper sticker. And that's the thing. I, I don't care if people want to be right wing or left wing, but you got to understand the situation. That means you're going to have to to read a, a, a Vox explainer or listen to some real information, and not just some bumper sticker about the good old days to understand what the problems and the solutions really are. Well, you know, but. Go ahead. Go ahead, Kathy. Go ahead. I was ahead. just going to say, it's true of, um, you know, uh, agricultural products, too. You know, people are complain about immigrants, but then if you if, – if we had American workers working in all the chicken factories, um, we would be paying, you know, $9 for a chicken sandwich at, at McDonald's, which is fine with me. But I think a lot of people would be not unhappy about that. So, I mean, there's a trade-off in everything we do. Yeah. Well, I would okay, say oh. they would balk at the $9 chicken sandwich at McDonald's. A lot of that's just because it's McDonald's and $9 is a lot for um, <laughs> mediocre I people. Well, that's just an example. But, but I mean, it would, yeah. be, it would be a higher price. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Catherine made an astute point about international relations in Europe as compared to here. Geography, we got two big oceans on either side of us and friendly nations north and south of us. Europe, you can start at the channel in a car and go all the way across France and be in Germany in about seven hours. Those nations are close together. The founder of of that party that she represents, one of them was her father, and the other founder was a man who was a Nazi collaborator with Vichy France in World War II. Uh, yeah, the the French people are thinking about uh, her her uh, getting cozy with guys like Putin considering what's going on in Europe. And I think that turned out to be the overriding issue in this campaign, even more so uh, than the economy, which seemed to be solidly her issue because he was the incumbent. But still, he's going to win this thing easily, and it's got to be the stuff with Putin that did it. 
Um, I actually, I, I had read a book um, for a class a little over a year ago called Why the French Don't Like Headscarves, and it told about Father Le Pen and, you know, how he, and I use that just because he's her father, not that he's a, a man of the cloth, um, but that he um, had served in World War II, and he'd served over in Algeria, um, and he, he got to where he didn't like Islam, and, and, and that was a lot of resentment, which was just a weird takeaway from World War II was anything about Islam. I mean, that was kind of just a, it's like he kind of lost the plot. Well, let me go ahead and um, switch gears now and welcome our guest back onto the show for multiple times now, um, Mike Tierney. Welcome, Mike. Hey, David. Long time. No see, man. I know. Well, you've been busy. We've been busy, but we had to get you in um, on this sports uh, political topic because it happened about a year ago, and and I've been wanting to have um, someone come talk about it, and who better than you? that um, really um, knows sports so well, but then also understands our intersection of sports and politics and society. And that would be about a year ago, maybe more like 10 months ago, the Supreme Court um, brought down a decision, a 9-0 decision to allow um, college athletes to use their name, image, and likeness to earn money. Um, Mike, when I saw that decision, I was absolutely struck by the 9-0 decision. That means every member, no matter how uh, conservative, how liberal, how moderate, they all agreed on this issue. So from your understanding of the case, how did it come to a 9-0 decision? Well, uh, there are a lot of organizations that are not real popular in this country right now particularly among uh, in the political world. And the NCAA is, is right on top of that list or right on the bottom, however you look at it. Um, um, th- there have been um, cries from Congress for years to, to grant more rights to uh, college athlete, athletes. And I think this, the court probably uh, somewhat reflected that. Um, you know, I mean, for, for decades, um, the NCAA ran, uh, I mean, it's been called a plantation system, maybe an overstatement, but I think it's, it was, it's, it's pretty clear that, uh, that the college athletes were, were restricted in their rights, particularly with earning when uh, other college students can go out and earn money based on their skills, but college athletes were prohibited from doing so. Yes, and so it was a lot about just the ability to earn money. Is that kind of where the um, the crux of the decision was based? Yeah, I mean, I mean, college athletes could not go get a job um, uh, because it, it was the NCAA believed that that there was you know room for corruption if uh, you know if if uh, an athlete wanted to go work at a at a fast food restaurant, so so the restrictions through the decades were were pretty extreme, and I think uh, legally um, the NCAA didn't have a foot to, uh, to stand on as far as that goes. But you know, plus you had um, college sports programs, uh, you know, benefiting financially uh, from the names and, and jersey numbers of these athletes and the athletes themselves weren't getting anything uh, 
at least directly from that. So uh, it, it, to me, what's, ama- what's amazing, and yeah, the, the Supreme Court decision was a bit surprising when it happened, but to me even more amazing with it was that the NCAA managed to, to conduct this operation for so long. Yes. Well, let me um, kind of, you know, one thing that everybody points to is two sports, college football, men's college basketball. And obviously, you know, hundreds of millions of maybe even billions of dollars now is generated through those two sports alone. Um, But let's just say that those two sports had an economic profile much like, you know, tennis, golf, volleyball, swimming, you know, soccer, you name it. Do you think if every sport was generating the, or probably even in some cases losing money like those sports did, would we even have a case brought up? Probably not. I, I think, uh, you know, with, with football and basketball, you have, you have more uh, athletes coming from underprivileged backgrounds. So I, I think, that aspect brought a lot of attention to it. Um, not been in those other sports that you mentioned, you don't have a similar situation, but in many of those sports, you had a lot more middle class and, and upper class uh, backgrounds uh, that athletes are coming from. So I think, uh, I think that, that partly uh, attributed to it. I also think that the coaching salaries was a big factor um, I mean, I, you know, where I'm living now, uh, I've, I've heard many times John Wood made uh, 40000 I think, was his top salary as a, as a coach. Now, uh, you, you know, you've got uh, college coaches making, you know, 7 to $8 million a year in some extreme cases. Uh, and so sort of the, the wealth disparity, if you will, between uh, uh, coaches and uh, athletes, grew and 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 college sports administrators as well so i think that also brought some extra attention to the issue yes i think uh, famously bear bryant uh, made sure he never made more than the college president in alabama but the college president didn't have a golden flake and coca-cola deal um for <laughs> his job true. so yeah that, that may even that out well one one little more area I wanted to cover before I pass it to Tim and Catherine, and that is the gender side of this. And I know we just have one year of data, and it may take 10 years before we really know, but I think the indications are there. Um, We know that we've had funding inequities for so many years in in school sports between um, male sports and female sports, and the NIL deals is not controlled by the colleges. It's by whatever entity out in that college town or state that wants to give money but has any indication been um put out there so far in that are male sports you know those athletes getting way more nil money than female athletes uh, there is no data uh to that point uh, david but interestingly uh, sports illustrated uh did a story with an interview with jack swarbrick who's the longtime Notre Dame athletics director and one of the more influential people in uh, college athletics. And, and 
he he is not sure that the NIL is going to even stand uh, because he, he he brought up Title Nine. Uh, he, he said, and I quote him, if all of this revenue is disproportionately coming to men, even if you didn't set it up, how does Title IX analyze that? So he's, he's raising the question that uh, this new system might run into Title IX uh, problems. Now, I, I will say that um, while the, the um, deals going to male football and basketball players are getting a lot of attention. Um, the, the women, there are some women athletes who are benefiting. For example, there are uh, twins. Um, their names are Haley and Hannah Cavender, who have just transferred from Fresno State to the University of Miami. And they have 400,000 Instagram followers and 4 million uh, of their material has been shared on TikTok. And they are going to get a very profitable NIL deal. Uh, closer to where I am, um, Jaime Jacquez, uh, the UCLA basketball standout, decided to come back for, for his senior year with the Bruins. And one of his motivating factors is he and his sister, who's an incoming freshman and a very good basketball player, they, they have got a package NIL deal uh, for the two of them. So there are instances in which uh, women athletes are getting deals, but no, we don't know the, the proportion men to women at this point. Um, but judging from the Notre Dame athletics director's comment, he, he suspects that uh, the men are, are, are raking in the vast majority of the deals. Yes, and I think that's very admirable about that young man coming back to help his little sister out. But I did hear, and you kind of spoke to it in a way, that um, the, a lot of female athletes that do get uh, big deals, there will be two factors at play that still are not level, is frankly um, a lot of the uh, women athletes that are able to garner big deals may be more physically attractive, and that's why they get their deal. In a lot of cases, which that's going to be, you know, unfair, a situation that other folks can't, um, you know, it's not based on, you know, work ethic or anything else. And the second thing was, and you mentioned the Instagram, that a lot of these athletes, particularly ones that aren't just big name, um, and a lot of times women too, are going to have to almost be like social media influencers, have to work, 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 on top of their sport, on top of their uh, caseload for their schooling, on top of just their regular life. They're going to have to almost be, become like a social media influencer to try to take advantage of all this NIL deals, which, I mean, hey, it's a, a pretty good side job compared to what a college student normally can get, but it is extra work that they may not have time for. Have you heard any um, criticisms on either one of those two things? Uh, to your first point, I have heard uh, when when all this went down, there was speculation that uh, that women uh, might get deals based on their physical appearance more so than men. Um, again, I haven't seen any data that, that speaks to that, um, but that, that is certainly something worth looking at. Um, and to your second point, yeah, um, they are going to have to work at it. Now, 
uh, a lot of these athletes already have a significant presence on social media. Um, but for those who don't, um, it will behoove them to do so. Now, I know some of the universities, and I, I, I believe UCLA and USC here in Los Angeles where I am, they are actually uh, having courses or seminars for athletes on how to market themselves. And obviously social media is a big uh, big way to do that. So, so the athletes are being informed, those who, who are not up to speed in that area, to do so. But, David, you talk about the, t- the time required. So uh, USC quarterback Caleb Williams transfer from Oklahoma, a very high-profile quarterback. Uh, it was recently announced that he signed a uh, NIL deal with a Beverly Hills real estate private equity fund. The terms haven't been disclosed, but you can bet it's, it's a lot. He also has deals with three other companies, Beats by Dre, Fanatics, and a men's grooming products company called Faculty. Now, I don't know how much time is going to be required of him to, to meet uh, the, the requirements of, of these four deals. Um, and I know the first one is actually kind of uh, fashion is, is like an internship. But, but, yeah, I mean, you wonder um, – I mean, time is tight already for college athletes, and now that they're going to be out having to work for these NILs, uh, you you really have to wonder how much time they're going to have for academics now. Yes. Well, no doubt time is tight, and I've got so many more questions, but uh, thinking back to time, I'm going to pass it to Tim and Catherine uh, for some more questions for you. Tim? Good evening, Mr. Tierney. Thank you for being with us this evening. Um, obviously, the NIL is, is coming with a boatload of problems. Is the main part of the problem because the NIL is, shall we say, an interim policy and governs state to state? And there is simply no federal guidance or framework in place to govern it. Is it even going to work without that? Well, Tim, I, I think uh, I think the, the answer is probably no. Um, I, I, I think the, the real issue is that um, um, some of the advocates for the NAILs were saying, well, um, you know, th- this is just going to bring uh, athletes being uh, compensated under the table, above the table, where we now know uh, how much they're getting compensated and, uh, and who's doing it. But I, I think it, what we didn't expect, or what most people didn't expect, is, is the amounts that some of these athletes were getting and also that the, um, the stronger Pro sports programs and bigger universities, they're they're going to benefit more than the, than the smaller ones. Um, mm-hmm. So you've got, like I said, uh, some of these schools like USC and UCLA, they are they are instructing athletes on how to benefit from this, and and uh, and you, you've got a, 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 like where I am, Los Angeles, where the opportunities are, are much greater than they might be in a small college town in the Midwest. 
So it, it's really going to be difficult, I think, to sort of even the playing field um, where I, I think it, I think some folks were hopeful when all this started that, yeah, yeah you know, uh, you know, maybe maybe some of these uh, athletes in, uh, in 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 Iowa uh, are going to get you know nice nice little deals from the local car dealership, and and they might be, but but you know the the money that's going to those athletes probably is paling in comparing to certain areas like here. And I I know in University of Miami. Um, a lot of things are happening there as well. So, you, you know, you've got probably large cities, large urban areas where the, the universities or the programs, I think, are going to benefit more than in the smaller towns. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, you, you make a very good point there, and I do have some stats. They come from AL.com or Alabama.com, and they say that 60% of the deals slash endorsements so far have gone to athletes in Division One college football, which would 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 make sense. Bryce Young, the quarterback at Alabama, is right now making about a million dollars in endorsements, and the average Division Three player in this country is garnering less than fifty dollars on average, and I was thinking no matter what even a new permanent law looks like, it's probably a given that some athletes are, are just going to cash in big time and and others are left out, and there's no way a law can address this, is there? No, I, I, I agree with that. I, don't, I, I can't imagine any federal legislation that's going to be able to to regulate it. and. And, and keep in mind too, the whole trend in college athletics is has been giving the athlete more rights, more freedoms, and and it kind of began with the, the changes in the transfer policy, uh, where athletes were allowed to uh, to transfer schools after they had a degree without having to sit out a year, and. And there have been a lot of abuses in that area as well. But but the general thinking is we have granted college athletes some rights. We're not going to take those rights back, particularly we're not going to take the rights back for for athletes who have got a college degree. So I think probably the same thinking will come into this NIL uh, issue where – Legislators will be very reluctant, I think, uh, to pull back on on rights um, that have been granted to athletes. Uh, I suppose there might be a way to to do things to put a, a cap on it, but I, you know, particularly you know the climate we're in now uh, and, and the way the Supreme Court is made up, I just don't see that happening. Yeah, you mentioned the Supreme Court. That was a nine-nothing vote. Would this be the time for an enterprising group of attorneys to get together with some players and go all the way and pay for play out for a spin and see where it goes in the court system? I, I, I That's probably never going to go away, Tim, but it, to me um, – 
this is a, a much better system than a, a pay-for-play. Um, the pay-for-play mm-hmm. per, per brings up all kind of uh, unintended consequences, and 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 I'm not sure that college athletes as a whole, once they realize all, all that 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 would mean, would would be in favor of it. Um, so I, I, yeah, I mean that that's probably never going to go away. But I know that that. Uh, some of these uh, ex-athletes who have who have lobbied for greater rights for for athletes now seem pretty happy with the current system. All right, and with that, sir, I'm going to pass it over to Catherine. Catherine. All right. Hey, Mike. Glad to have you on the show. Hey, Catherine. Thank you. Um, this is all um, very interesting to me, but completely out of my bailiwick. So I want to ask you about your new book. <laughs> I understand you have a new book, and we'd love to. I know our our listeners would love to hear about it, and so would we. Well, great. Thanks for bringing it up. Uh, so I have been uh, uh, a b- basketball coach on the side uh, since 1996, and uh, I coached in uh, in Decatur uh, school program uh, for many years before leaving, and. Um, one thing that I noticed a lot with the kids I coached, and I coached from uh, sixth grade on up to uh, junior varsity, so sixth through tenth grade, is is that uh, particularly boys were not reading books as much as they were when I was their age. And uh, then I, I, I kind of looked further into it, and, and I, I decided that one reason was uh, they are not being provided books uh, on topics that they might be interested in. Um, so I started working probably eight, nine years ago on a, uh, a, a teen fiction novel about a basketball player, basketball team. And uh, it was finally published last year. It's called Perfect to a Fault. And it's about a 10th uh, a grade basketball player who um, begins the season with a perfect shooting game and goes through the entire season without missing a shot and gets to the uh, championship game, still hasn't missed a shot, gets down to the final possession, a chance to deliver a title to his team. And I won't tell you what happens on his last shot, but uh, that's pretty much how the book ends. The story ends. Well, that's great. I, I'm I'm kind of fascinated by YA um, literature. I've read, I have some friends who are really into it, and they'll just mention books every once in a while, and I, I always enjoy them. So I'll have to take a look. I do well, have one I, thought I have, about. Uh, um, oh, go ahead. I I have a number of of, of author friends uh, in the YA field, and uh, and. And I'm very happy for them, but the, the vast majority of books for that age group now are, are more fantasy, uh, sort of gothic, um, maybe a little science fiction. There just uh, aren't uh, many books in this genre. And I, I happen a couple of uh, sports writer colleagues of mine have been successful in it. Um, and, and one of the other successful writers was uh, Tim Green, the uh, longtime Atlanta Falcons player who's uh, oh, cool. who's had success in that area as well. So, But 
very few authors have done well, and I and uh, I I shopped the book through agents for many years and uh, generally wrote it, ran into dead ends because there just wasn't uh, that much of interest in a uh, a sports book uh, that appeals to boys. Not that girls wouldn't uh, appreciate the story, but. Uh, I, I just felt there was a void there for teen boys. Mm-hmm. I did want to. I did want to um, talk just a little bit about the pay for play idea. I uh, I understand that this nil does make um, that less in demand, um, but there's a lot of athletes in our you know college sports. Uh, systems, whether it's NCAA or whatever, that, you know, aren't going to have the opportunity to be, to take it, probably take advantage of, you know, selling their image, um, name and likeness uh, to promote a product. I mean, there's just only so much of that that's going to be available. And I've always felt like, um, I mean, I, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I worked for a long time and grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is a huge Michigan, a huge college football town. And I mean, that college, that football program raises, you know, I'm sure hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And I always felt like the, the uh, student athletes were the ones who, you know, sort of got the short end. Even um, so, I just wonder if that pay for play maybe. Uh, I mean, I understand their shortcomings, but I do think that, especially for the lesser known players, would be a good thing. Well, um, I, I think what what may happen is we will see how this nil thing works out for a couple of years, and if. Uh, if all of the riches are going to a select few, then then maybe that discussion will be brought back to the fore. Um, I, I think it's quieted now, and I think one reason it's quieted is because one reason I I like the system is that essentially it's not the schools that are compensating these athletes; it's other people that are, and. And what you say about the University of Michigan is true, but I think there's a misconception out there that um, a lot of sports programs that we would think are thriving uh, financially are not. And, in fact, uh, there are major schools that kind of operate in the red or have in the past. Yeah, I'm sure there are, yeah. Um, So um, I I don't know that... that, uh, uh, a lot of again, we don't know how pay for play would work. I guess there would be a modest salary for for athletes, and, but you know you would be talking about they would almost certainly be unionized. Uh, you're talking healthcare benefits and all that sort of thing. I, I'm not saying it it wouldn't work, but I think the challenges are 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 quite uh, steep there and varied. So, but but. Um, what I would like first to step. see. I mean, I'm not, I, I think this is a good first step, and like you said, we'll see how this goes. And you know, 
maybe in two years or four years or five years, they'll look, take a look and see if it's, you know, being equitably, you know, shared or however, and and right. then now, look at it again. What what I was hoping would happen, and it's 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 only happened in a few places, is like an entire team would get a deal. Uh, I mentioned the University of Miami. There's a uh, a company down there. Uh, I, th- I think they manufacture pants, men's pants or something, and they have. They have offered, I think, maybe $400 to every football player. Um, granted, $400 is not very much, but, but at least the, the wealth is being spread. I, I think at Texas A&M, maybe a, uh, a car dealer maybe had done a similar thing. So uh, I, I would love yeah, that's to a great see idea. The, those types of things rather than Bryce Young making a million bucks. Whereas in a couple of years he's going to be making a lot more million in the NFL, so he doesn't need it. Um, here, here's another good thing about the NFLs, and I, I mentioned the UCLA player Jacquez earlier. Um, so K- K- Kentucky had a basketball player this year, Tashibwe, who was the College Player of the Year. Um, he was in any other year he would leave for the NBA. Now he he would not be a, a, a an early draft pick, but he would have been chosen in the draft and gotten a nice contract. He decided to stay at Kentucky for one more year. Kentucky, and I, I think I had this right, Kentucky has told him, we will find you $2 million worth of NIL deals. Now, again, um, should a guy who's going to be in the NBA be getting this kind of money? Well, maybe that's unfair, but the point is, uh, he's going to be playing college sports for one more year, where is in the previous area he would not. The UCLA guy coming back the same. So I think I'm, I'm getting a little bit off your, your topic here, but I think this could be a good thing for college sports, where you, you've got uh, athletes hanging around longer and, uh, and, and playing more than than fleeing for uh, professional contracts. And hopefully finishing their degrees at the same time. You, you would hope. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, yeah. I, that I might mean, be a little too much to hope for. It might, but, you know, I was talking about the transfer portal earlier. One good thing about that is is athletes had the incentive to get their degree so they could go ahead and transfer to another school uh, without having to sit out a year. So, uh, so yeah, uh, you would hope that um, that the uh, the degree earning will will take a a slight climb if uh, if, yeah. if this continues. Well, thanks very much, Mike. I'm going to send it back to David for some all right follow up. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Well, Mike, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. You told us about the book. If someone's I heard what you said, wants to buy your book. Um, tell us some places you'd prefer them to look. Uh, not that I'm a, a big fan of Amazon, but that's the main place. So uh, perfect to a fault. Um, and uh, you can grab it off Amazon. Okay. I mean, uh, any, any way, and it's a little like, hey, the Internet, just look. It's there. But, you know, I just didn't know if there's some specific source that you had signed copies or something. Well, um, any other projects or writings that you want to tell our listeners about that's coming up? 
Um, let's see. You know, I, I've, I've actually kind of gotten more in the sports gambling uh, area now. Um, so I, I work for uh, CBS Sportsline uh, doing gambling picks. I, I write uh, some sports gambling stories as a, a site called Sports Handle. Um, so it's it's uh, an area that is always a bit of interest to me, and of course it's it's kind of the wave in sports now. Um, I was I was sitting at a bar uh, the other night watching the Hawks game, and uh, a couple of guys next to me were betting all during the game. <laughs> and I I know that happens, but it's the first time I've seen it up close and personal. And uh, but it, it it drove home how. Uh, how sports gambling is becoming more acceptable in the sports world. And, uh, you know, these arenas are, are now uh, opening sports books in them. Uh, you will probably see one at Mercedes-Benz Stadium uh, before long, I would imagine. Yeah, it's, uh, Mike, you had me worried when you said I'm getting more into sports gambling. I was going to hope you were going to say, <laughs> yeah, if I don't start winning some bets, I'll be performing at a tent on Skid Row. Um, uh, I'm glad you're writing about it, and not placing um, risky bets. No, I've, I've I've never been a big better, David. But but oddly for me, when I make picks and put them out in the public, that sort of replaces betting for me. So, you know, if if you bet ten dollars a game, uh, then you're risking ten bucks. But when you put your your pick out to the public and who knows? They may be making bets based on your recommendation. I, I feel that that's a sort of a form of gambling in itself. So, but uh, I, I prefer to do it this way because if I get on a losing streak, it doesn't cost me anything. <laughs> Definitely so. All right, Mike. Well, good to have you on the show talking to us about NIL, your book, and other things. And who knows when um, – the path of politics and sports will cross again, and we'll call on you again in the future. Great. Looking forward to it, guys. Thanks, Mike. All right. Thanks. Thank Take you, care. sir. Bye-bye. All right. Mike Tierney, longtime uh, sports editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution writer, now child or young adult author and uh, sports gambling um, advice giver, we'll say. Um, well, let's go ahead and talk about our final topic uh, speaking about needing some advice, um, some audio from a while back came out on Kevin from Kevin McCarthy, who is uh, the current Republican um, leader in the House. Um, you know, if things were to just go like, you know, sometimes they normally do and the next person up just takes over and the Republicans win the House, he could be the Speaker of the House. Um, we'll talk about that without placing bets on it. Um at least actual physical money. Um, but, Tim, fill us in on some of that audio. Okay. It started with a new book called uh, This Will Not Pass Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. It was written by a couple of guys that worked with the New York Times by the name of Alexander Burns and Jonathan Martin. So far, so good. In that book, and the New York Times published this this week, excerpts from the book, like they would most any book, uh, that uh, McCarthy uh, basically had told someone that 
This was right after the January 6th uh, insurrection that he was going to uh, call the president and tell him that he was going to be impeached in the House and that there would probably be enough votes in the Senate to uh, convict him and that he should just go ahead and resign. Well, uh, he said he didn't say it. The New York Times had it all wrong. You know, the usual stuff, the fake news, blah, 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 that sort of line. Well, then the two authors of the book produced uh, a tape of McCarthy saying exactly what he denied. As a matter of fact, he was saying it in a call of all people to uh, Representative Cheney. Uh, And uh, now he's got a scramble to (laughs) cover extreme damage. And the question is, uh, what will some people do or say about this, especially Trump and especially especially at the point where this guy's, well, auditioning in front of the American people to be the next Speaker of the House. How does this look? And what will the House Republican Caucus uh, do about this? Uh, And that's where it stands right now. Representative McCarthy did not have a good week. Yes. Uh, now, Catherine, prior to this tape or, or the you know quote coming out, then the tape coming out, uh, folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Thomas Massey, um, Matt Gates, Madison Cawthorn, those folks were already pretty suspect of um, Kevin McCarthy continuing on as minority leader and then eventually, if they were to retake the House, Speaker of the House. Given this week's events, what do you think happens to his odds? Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we turn. <laughs> we, whatever that Shakespeare quote is. You know, these guys, they just got to learn not to lie. They just make them look like fools, especially on tape. Uh, yeah. Well, it's all going to depend on if everybody remembers this. If the Republicans win the House after that, if they remember this week and the bad week that Kevin McCarthy had, or if between now and then he recovers in some fashion. So who knows? But it's just it's just ridiculous that they can't. Yeah, I'm going to paraphrase Shakespeare. Oh, what a tangled web we weave. When we initially try to say and do the right thing and then have a caucus full of nut jobs that we have to answer to, because um, it was real funny. Uh, Jonah Goldberg, who's a conservative who writes for the National Review, you know, he said it's kind of ironic that Kevin McCarthy's actually going to be brought down um, for re- initially doing the right thing, you know, standing up for democracy. But, of course, there's just too many folks in that caucus that can't have this. Uh, Tim, what do you think is going to be the eventual outcome of Kevin McCarthy's leadership? 
for the Republicans. Well, I think it. I think it depends. I actually think he might could survive this, especially in the times that we're in. First of all, if Trump passes this off and doesn't really have much or anything to say about it, uh, that yeah. would help him. Uh, the the only question then is. Is there another strong Republican in the House that suddenly is saying, wait a minute, this is my chance. I could run for speaker, and I might, and, and I might win. I've got to think that there's one or two of those. Wouldn't you think so? Yes. I mean, there's yeah. always somebody wanting to grab power. Yeah, and, yeah, and this, give, this gives them their chance, yeah. Yeah, and I, and it would be interesting. Is this something that, for some reason, Trump thinks is too much inside baseball, and he doesn't see as a, you know, an, an affront to his leadership, and he overlooks? Well, I mean, he would really you, have to lose focus here, wouldn't he? Yeah, but just yesterday he was, I believe, in Ohio, and uh, he made a, uh, you know, his general talk. And he was talking about the fellow that he endorsed up there in the Ohio Senate race, and he mentioned the fact that some people had said, well, you know, this guy said a lot of bad things about you. And Trump made the observation that if if I just discounted everyone who's privately said something bad about me, or, or even sometimes in public, he said, it's okay as long as they come back. Well, guess what wow. happened 17 days after uh, Trump left office? There was McCarthy down there at Mar-a-Lago doing photo ops with him, kissing up with him after he had said what he said. And I'm sure by then Trump probably knew that he had said it. So I, I'm I'm going to bet that that if he gets by Trump, all right, then the only problem he's got is 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 he going to face some strong opposition in his own caucus because this left an opening for him. I'm thinking Trump's going to let this go by, and there's a fifty-fifty shot that he's going to survive this thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Trump letting it, you know, slide for now would definitely help him. And it could be that, you know, some of the Republicans may say, hey, we need to just not argue about this until after the election. And then somebody swoops in and tries to take him out. And, of course, there are some probably Republicans that realize if he gets taken out, one of those folks that I mentioned um, could try to swoop in and somehow, you know, put themselves in. And they're you know, mm-hmm. one of those nut jobs, and and, and yep. hopefully most of the Republicans know for their own sake, if not for the sake of the country, that the you know everybody on the list I named are just woefully inadequate for that position. Yep. Yes. Well, um, great having Mike on the show, and a very interesting topic. Where our set of topics tonight, where we went from France to. Back here in America and, and remember politicians and everything else. Next week, our guest is going to be Miles Coleman, and they've done some demographic uh, research on the country. And among other things, he's going to share that with us uh, next week on the show. Till until then, been the Cozy Vine. 